We are continuing our uh, series on spiritual rhythms, the spiritual formation, the, the types of habits and proclivities and practices that we are looking for in uh, our lives to help us to be more available to Christ, to what He wants to do in our lives. And this morning we're looking at the idea of contemplation. And this is our psalm reading, Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, once again, we pray that you would meet us in this place, that you would meet us where we are. Let us sense your presence this morning. Some of us come into this room uncertain about so much in life, maybe uncertain even about you, and I pray that you would reveal yourself. Others of us are carrying around deep wounds. We've been hurt by a friend, a parent, maybe by someone in the church, and we need your comfort. For some of us, the fog of depression or disillusionment or even despair just won't seem to lift. Maybe we're carrying around anxieties about this upcoming week, or shame and regret from last week, and we need your calming presence. And this week, as Scott prayed, we've seen yet again violence, racism, and hatred rear its head in a terrible way, where our brothers and sisters were gunned down in senseless violence. It's difficult to get our head around events like these, to know how to respond, to know how to help or even if we can, would you be with those families? Would you sit close to them and comfort them in mourning? 
And for all of us this morning, give us Jesus. Let us see His beauty. Let us be drawn into His embrace and into His life. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You figure out pretty quickly, if you're a parent, uh, that when you pick up your kids from school, if you ask them how their day went, it's always going to be the same one-word answer, good, or maybe fine. And so I decided that no more one-word answers, no more questions that could be answered with one word. So I started asking them things like, well, did anything interesting happen in school today? Or who did you sit by and what did you talk about? Or what did you learn new today? And I thought these were pretty good. But then I heard uh, Dorothy Bass, who's a scholar of American religion, tell the story of a mom who every night before bed would ask her children, where did you meet God today? The first time you do this with your kids, you might get kind of a smirk or a funny look because they're not used to it, but these children of hers had gotten used to it, and they would tell her an answer to, where did you meet God today? Well, a teacher helped me, or there was a homeless person in the park, or I saw a tree with lots of beautiful flowers on it. And then the mom tells them where she met God today, and before the children drift off to sleep, the stuff of their day has become the, the soil of contemplation and prayer. You see, they, they found in their family life a very thin place where the presence of God felt very near to them. Contemplation, what we're talking about this morning, is, is looking out for, it's seeking out, it's being aware of those thin places in your life where heaven and earth seem to merge together. It's asking in your day-to-day life, where is God showing up? That if you didn't have your eyes open to it intentionally, that you might miss it. How easy is it for us to miss God in our lives, to miss His presence? I ate lunch in a park this week, and I thought before sitting down, you know, I'm just going to enjoy the breeze. It's sunny. It's like 72 degrees. It's perfect. There's people walking about, going to and fro, either relaxing or going about their business. I'm going to notice the trees and the sun, and I'm going to perhaps even think about how God is speaking to me in this moment and this week. I had my phone out in five minutes. We live under the tyranny of constant contact. It used to be email, and people expected a response within a day or so. Now it's texting where you send someone a text and you expect a response within minutes. And I'm often catching up with text as soon as I wake up in the morning. And before I get out of bed, I'm checking Facebook for relevant information. And then before I go to sleep, these are horrible habits, I know. But I imagine I'm not alone. I imagine that you probably uh, can see your own life in, in that. What I'm saying is that it's difficult to be still. It's difficult to be contemplative. It takes intentionality. It takes intentionality to wake up to the presence of God in everyday life. So those are some of the difficulties. Well, let's turn our attention to the text and see if we can get some guidance. David is in a situation that is probably a little bit unfamiliar to us. His life is actually in jeopardy, and he makes a realization and then makes a request, 
and then commits to a response. So first of all, realization. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Light. This is a metaphor that is so rich in Scripture. It's repeated over 200 times. And the characteristics of life are sort of obvious to us at, at first glance. We need it to see. We need it, to, need it in order to see what lies ahead. It shines on our path so we don't trip and fall. But the Bible is using light in an even deeper way. It's deeper than that in that light is not, not self-generated. It doesn't exist on its own, but it's generated by something else. From our perspective, light comes upon us. It comes upon the earth, and it transforms it. It brings the possibility of new life. The Bible story, the whole story of the Bible, begins with light. Have you ever thought of that? It begins with light out of darkness, out of nothing. In Genesis 1, light is the very first thing that's created. Fast forward all the way to Revelation, the very end of it. What happens? Light finally obliterates darkness once and for all. Light is a huge metaphor in the Bible. Light is existence out of non-existence. It's order from chaos. It's non-creation to something new. And what David is saying is that God is that. God is light. His light not only began the story but, and is constantly guiding it forward, but he is light in his very nature and character. And David sits in the middle of this story, in between Genesis and Revelation, and he begins, even though his life is in jeopardy, resting in the fact that not only is God's light presently shining upon him, but the God he knows is light in his nature. And thus, in David's circumstances, in his daily life, he can see God's light in spite of his enemy's intentions, in spite of being disowned by his family. Can you imagine anything worse? It happened to David. But none of these things have the light last word because light, God's character, brings order from chaos, existence from nothing. God in His character and His presence creates something new. David looks around and he sees great danger. His horizontal earthbound perspective is very limiting and very scary, much like ours is every day. But light, light coming upon David, God is light. And maybe as he began to ask himself, we can ask ourselves, who is God for me in this moment? Where do I see God's light shining in spite of the difficulties of life? Where is God and how is he at work? How do his promises come to bear upon this very circumstance? How is he alive unto me right now? In the loss of a job, the rejection of a friend, the failure of a test, or in a sunrise, in a baby's birth, in a nap. That's where I find God a lot. <laughs> Saying, God, let me see you in this. Let me see your light. Now, the cool thing about this is that contemplation doesn't necessarily involve taking up a new regimen. It can, but 
it, you don't have to spend a week at a monastery to figure out contemplation. It's as, simply, it's as simple as doing what David does here. He wakes up to God's present presence in his life that already exists. You see, we need to consider what is the white noise in our life that is drowning out God's still small voice? What's the white noise that's blocking out God's presence? Beyond what I've shared already, a big one for me is NPR. And I don't mean the content, I mean the fact that I can't turn it off. I love NPR too much. I get up in the morning while I'm getting dressed, I listen to the news report. Then while I'm making lunch for the kids and breakfast, I'm listening to Morning Edition. And then when I'm in the car, whatever is on, it's on in my car and in my ears. What I realized is that though those things can be helpful, it's important to know what's going on in the world, that NPR for me was an escape from my life. It was avoiding sometimes my kids. It was avoiding silence. I didn't like silence. It was scary. What I was doing is I was avoiding God. It became white noise for me, and so it took practice to get in the car and not turn the radio on immediately. And it was weird for a while, just driving in silence. But there, those are moments where you can pick up on God's presence, where He can speak to you. What is it for you? Maybe it's news, maybe it's blogs, it's books. It's just the sheer busyness of life. Maybe you need to address your calendar because you don't have any margins in which God can speak into silence. You're constantly distracted. You're constantly on the go, and you don't have time to be still. Well, David makes this realization about God being light, but then he makes a request. Actually, a, one request in two parts. One thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and, or in order to, gaze on the beauty of the Lord. One request in two parts. Dwell in God's house and gaze at His beauty. Well, what is house in terms of David's mentality in his mind? Well, the house of God was the ultimate thin place because it's where God resided. You see, of course, God is omnipresent, but He chooses to make Himself especially present in very specific places. Think about the Garden of Eden. Think about the burning bush that God speaks physically present to Moses. Think about Mount Zion where Moses goes up to meet with God. He's omnipresent, but he's there especially. And then the tabernacle, that's the tent that David is likely referring to, and then later the temple, the physical temple, and then the church where God in His presence is embodied in the worshiping community. These are thin places. He's everywhere, but He's especially present in certain places. And this is what David is missing. This is what he's longing for, because likely he's in exile, he's on the run, his enemies are at the gate, so to speak, and he's cut off from that thin place. He's cut off from the place where God dwells in his house, and therefore his soul is impoverished. And why does he want to be in that house? He wants to be with God, and he wants to gaze upon his beauty. Maybe we're 
familiar with the Bible using terms like greatness and awe and majesty for God. But here David is using a term that we, we use for art or for objects of desire. Now, when you see something beautiful, you don't think, how can I use that? How can I manipulate that for my purposes? You think, just seeing art, just experiencing it is satisfying in and of itself. So you look at it and you don't say this wonderful thing is something I can use for my own means, my own goals, but it's something that puts your means and your goals into perspective, right? Experience of true beauty shuts up our ego. It radically decenters us. It pulls us away from the, the self-absorption of our own story. And finite beauty can do that. Music, painting, dance, literature can decenter us. It can inspire us. It can challenge us. But where it's not so good is being the ultimate reason for hope in the universe. It's not going to change the future. That beautiful painting or that wonderful piece of music may offer some solace, but it's not so good when the enemy is at the gates. You see, the, the beauty of the Lord, though, is different. Don't you see, David is thinking, if I, in, in this place of great difficulty, if I could only see the beauty of the Lord, if I could relocate my heart's source of ultimate beauty in Him, then there's no power on the face of the earth that can take away my meaning. There's no military, social power. There's no psychological thing that can knock him off his meaning. Nothing. David wants beauty in the face of evil. And in fact, if you think about it, beauty is the ultimate challenge to evil. Weren't we all amazed last week when the family members of those who were killed in Charleston said, we forgive you in unison? Wasn't that a moment of beauty? And isn't it because they had seen ultimate beauty, the kind that goes to a cross and says, Father, forgive them for I, they know not what they do. Weren't they simply mimicking ultimate beauty? Their hearts had been relocated to the beauty of God. And in the moment of their greatest distress, they were able to find beauty and say, we forgive you. You see, beauty in this sense, gazing at beauty, being in the presence of God, is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's no easy outs in this world. There's no easy solutions. You see, evil may indeed come, but what do we say in the face of it is, I have beauty, I have God, I have ultimate meaning. This is David's one thing. This is one thing I seek, to be with God and enjoy His beauty. The thing is, friends, is that we all have one thing in our lives, or maybe it's an array of little one things that are competing for attention. They're making their presence known all day long, saying, look at me, follow me, work for me, pursue me, and we're contemplating them. Do you see? They're taking up residence in our lives, and therefore they're right in our view scope. But what are they in the face of evil? 
What are they when the enemy is at the door? What are they when we sense loss or deprivation? Do they fill you? David is saying his one thing, his greatest request in light of the challenges of life is that he might gaze upon God, that he might be with God, that he might be so captivated and transfixed by the beauty of God that it relativizes his challenges and his difficulties. David makes a a realization about God, about his character. He makes a request, and then he commits to a response. My heart says of you, verse 8, seek his face. Seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. This is his response. It would be only natural for us to assume in David's circumstances, what is he going to pray for? What is he going to seek? He's going to seek God's protection. He's going to seek God's deliverance. He's going to seek God's strength. But no, he seeks his face, his face. Our face is our relational presence, and it's the same with God. God's face is his relational presence. It shows his mental disposition towards others. A number of you asked me about the Albert Camus quote in the bulletin last week, which I didn't quote in the sermon, but it's wonderful. It gets to this idea, and he, this is from the plague, and he, a character named Rue, he knew also what the old man was thinking as his tears flowed, and he thought it too, that a loveless world is a dead world, and always there comes an hour when one is weary of prisons and one's work and a devotion to duty. And all one craves for is a loved face, the warmth and wonder of a loving heart. All one craves for, the one thing, is a loved face. Presbyterians, of which I am one, we're really good at systematic theology. We're really good at chopping the Bible into bits that are true things to contemplate. We're good at creeds and confessions, and these all have their place. It's important to know what you claim to believe. And we recite one each and every week after the sermon to remind us of the great doctrines of the faith. But it's also important to remember that God is not an abstraction, that all the what answers in the world aren't particularly helpful if you don't know the who. All the what answers in the world aren't particularly helpful if you don't know who it is that you are loved by and who it is you love. Christianity isn't about what we believe first and foremost, but who it is we love and who loves us. How comforting in the midst of difficulty, in everyday challenges, when we find a face in front of us that is full of warmth, that is full of understanding, that is full of approval, of delight, of empathy. How powerful that is to relativize all the other sad faces in our lives. When one is weary, all one wants is a loved face. This is what what David longs for. A loved face and a face that loves him back. This is his one thing to see warmth and approval and delight on the face of God, to look upon the face of God and to see a smile in his daily life, not in the abstract. But can he expect that 
I guess that's the question that this really drives us to, is that are we being presumptive to want to be in the presence of God and expect a smiling face? The word for face or presence is used 2,000 times in the Hebrew Bible. And one of the most devastating ones is Genesis 3.8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence. They hid themselves from the face of God. It's the very same word David uses. They hid themselves from his face amongst the trees of the garden. What's going on here? Well, Adam and his wife, Adam and Eve, we're told, enjoyed this life of comfort where God was present to them in immediate ways, that He was there with them. His face was there. His presence was there. But what happened was that His presence was taken for granted. They decided that God was great, but He wasn't their one thing. They wanted God's provision, maybe His protection, but they didn't long for His presence. They didn't long for his face, and they turned away from him, hiding from his face, his presence among the trees. And in their presumption, Adam and Eve are banished out of the direct presence of God, out of the immediate presence of God. They're banished from the light of God. They're evicted from God's home. They're banished from his face and his presence. Yet, David presumes upon these very things. How is that? How is it that his ancestors are kicked out of home, and yet he presumes upon not only being welcomed to the home, but he presumes upon the smiling face of God? Well, you see, what David knows is not just things about God, but he knows God's face. He knows God experientially. He knows that the, the story continues to unfold after they are kicked out of the gar- garden and after Adam and Eve are banished. And God sets about immediately to bring them back into His presence. You see, that's God walking in the cool of the garden saying, Adam and Eve, where are you? You see, He longs for their presence and it's been severed. They are now hiding from his face, and he wants to look upon them, and he wants them to look upon him, and so he goes about pursuing them. David knows that he's but a forerunner, that he's in the middle of the story. He's in the middle of this great drama of redemption that began when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and all the way to the end where light will finally come and eradicate all darkness, that David is in the middle and he knows about this one who is coming, of which David is a forerunner, that he is a king, but he's the forerunner of the ultimate king who will bring healing and life. And that king left his home. You see, he left the immediate presence and face of God. He left light, perfect light, and came to walk in the darkness of our world. He was the ultimate face, the ultimate presence of God. And we read in Colossians 1, the Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. 
Friends, what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus, or that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, but His face is Jesus. His presence takes up particularly in the person of Jesus. Jesus represents, He images forth. He's the icon of God. What does it mean for us in contemplation and daily life? Well, it means that God is smiling upon you in Jesus. Now, go look for it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that we would begin more and more to look for Your face, to look for Your smiling presence, that we would long for the one thing to be that we are in relationship with You, that You are our Father, our God, our King, our friend. Lord, I pray that each and every week as we gather here at InTown, that this would be a thin place as we confess our faith and as we come to the table, that those elements would be a thin place, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.